You know, in Jewish tradition, there's a very special place for the Babylonian Talmud. It has been the source for so much of the richness of the teaching by rabbis over the centuries. It has a story in it called Messiah at the Gates of Rome that tells us where we can find the Messiah. You can find the Messiah at the gates of the city, sitting there among the poor, the sick, the lepers, like them changing the bandages on his wounds. But he changes them one at a time, just in case he is needed. Welcome to Open Out, a podcast series on the nitty-gritty of opening our lives and faith communities to the stranger, the newcomer, to any and all who might not only look and sound different, but also think and act in ways we might not expect. My name is Bill Miller, and this series grew out of research funded by the United Church, research that was trying to discover why some communities, like Knox United in Winnipeg, where I served for 14 years, have been able to transform themselves into truly global communities and to create tools and insights for other communities who want to travel a similar path. Today's episode, the last in our Considering series, is called That's How the Light Gets In. We'll explore how vulnerability and brokenness can be essential to the process of effectively and sustainably opening ourselves to those who are somehow different than us. well-known words of the Canadian poet and prophet Leonard Cohen. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This podcast is a bit of a rambling meditation on what we, as people of faith, can bring to the table. You might think of the communion table, or the boardroom table, and perhaps even the negotiating table or the kitchen tables where we used to sit around when we could visit in person. Ah, May that day come again soon. And what we can bring to the intercultural table, or better, what we need to bring to the table, might indeed surprise you. I've mentioned before that at one time I worked for the region, what was then called the Presbytery, doing interim or transitional ministry. Every year the Presbytery would decide where they wanted to send me. One year, they decided to send me to Stella Mission in Winnipeg's North End. What's happening there, I asked. Well, they said, we fired the staff, dismissed the board, and canceled all the programs. Do your best. I had no idea what to do, so I just started walking around the neighborhood. Since nearly every person I met or saw was indigenous, and because I was a highly trained professional in this field, I thought, hmm, maybe this should be an indigenous ministry. So I pulled together some folk from the neighborhood, all indigenous, plus a few indigenous leaders from the arts or recreation field, and and some church leaders who also were mostly indigenous, to form a kind of leadership group to discuss and discern. Though, really, I still had no idea what to do. We all have our own little quirks, don't we? Our, Our odd traits. When I don't know what to do, sometimes I'll just sit, like like a rock or a stump. I'll just sit on my hands and say nothing. We started having meetings, this group. I was the leader, and then since I didn't know what to do, sometimes I would just sit, stump-like. 
I'd listen when other people spoke, and, and often they would speak about their pain related to this building, that sense, that feeling of being excluded, unwelcome. Often, however, we'd just sit in a circle, all stump-like and quiet. I felt like a total failure. It went on like this for weeks, well, months, really. When we did use words, we'd talk about birthing something new. It's just that none of us knew what or how. One night, just before New Year's, I got a phone call from the alarm company saying that a pipe had burst on the third floor. I called the leadership team, and we all ran down there. One of the group members smiled at me and said, Well, I guess her waters broke. Soon after that, whole new sets of possibilities began to materialize. We kept meeting, but now we had something to talk about, to dream about. Then one day, that same person looked at me and said, You know, you're the first white man I ever knew who knew how and when to keep his mouth shut and just listen. I thought of my anxiety and how it had caused me to freeze. And in that moment, I realized that God can use my incompetency just as easily as my competency. God knows I am not exactly perceptive. So just in case I hadn't fully caught the message, about a year later, the conference executive minister, as they were called back then, gave me the greatest compliment of my life. Um, Just a little sidebar here. I am rather easily distracted. And And I can't recall a single worship service that I've ever conducted from start to finish where I did not make some kind of mistake. I'd forget a hymn or screw up the words of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, With the advent of PowerPoint, my glitches went up exponentially. Anyways, I had done a big presentation to some kind of large church group. And except for a few minor stumbles, it had gone pretty well. And then Diane, the executive minister, came up to thank me. I was grateful and said she was kind, what with the glitches and all. Then she said, no, Bill, it's not like that. That's not the reason we love to listen to you. It's not that you are doing it perfectly or or even doing it well. It's that when we see you standing up there, taking the risk and doing it, we think to ourselves, well, if he can do that. And that gives courage to the rest of us to try. It was, in truth, deep praise, and actually deep insight into my ministry. I carried these messages into the greatest challenge of my ministry, working at Knox. At one point, when I was preparing for this series, I had dinner with Michael Blair, a brilliant and passionate leader in the National United Church. I was talking about how fortunate I'd been in that ministry to be surrounded by all these brilliant leaders in the newcomer communities. So smart, so courageous. Then he said to me, when you're doing this series, don't downplay your role, your contribution as a leader. I made some kind of a wisecrack, and then he said to me, you knew how and when to get out of the way, and so to allow the people to bring their gifts, their talents forward. This is, I realized through a quick Google search, not a novel idea. In 2017, Forbes had a main article called How to Lead by Getting Out of the Way. And in 2019, the Wall Street Journal had one called Bosses, Get Out of Your Employees' Way. The rest of this podcast will be based on a conversation I had with Damber Kadka. A short little chat about what you need in order to make intercultural church work. And in that short little chat, he packed in so much wisdom. I really wanted to find a way of trying to share that with you. 
But first, let me explain a little bit about Damber. Damber, you might remember from an earlier podcast, talked about pulling open that heavy door at Knox in 2009 as a newly arrived refugee, one of the Nepali-speaking Bhutanese who had been in the camps for almost 20 years. He'd been ordained in Nepal by some Baptist group that had started a ministry there years ago and then left. And so the church had kind of morphed on its own. The United Church would not, said they could not, recognize his ordination. His theological education had been in Sikkim, but the seminary there had been sold or it had closed, and and so there was no way to transfer any credits. Like the foreign doctor driving cab, his credentials were no good here. If he wanted to be in ministry, he would have to totally redo his theological education, which he's now doing. For many years, he functioned as a lay minister at Knox, leading up that Nepali group, such a vital part of our community. We worked together for almost a decade, and I learned so much. I wanted his perspective as a newcomer and an immigrant about what he thought was the secret for a church here to become intentionally open, truly intercultural. Oh, I think uh, to become the intercultural, I think uh, we should, each one of us, each individual should give away their power, give away their power. And, and just create this space, a very vulnerable space, where everyone can adjust, uh, accommodate it together, uh, irrespective of their culture, irrespective of their uh, tradition, whatever. Just create the room. So out of all the different lines of thought that could have come into his mind when thinking about how a church can become intercultural, Damber bruised by the rules himself, and having cultivated a new ministry in this land, says, each person should give up their power. We'll come back to his idea of creating a vulnerable space in a bit. But first, let's focus on that power giveaway. The first thing is we have to give away our power, our, our uh, thought that uh, is not allowing us to move further. That, that is the very preliminary step. So for Damber, the first step in creating an open community, community that is open to all, involves intentionally giving away our power, which he describes as our, our thought, our thought pattern that is not allowing us to move forward. One of the questions that has motivated my research was why did it work at Knox when it so often doesn't? Why did it move forward there when it so often stalls? And Damber's answer to that is that our power, or rather our holding on, our clinging to power, is the thought pattern that keeps us from moving forward. We need to give that up, he says. The only real way to do this, I think, is to know that we need them, the newcomers, the strangers, the different ones, We need them in order for us to be us, the us that we want to be. They're not clients of ours. They're not needy others to whom we can offer some charity, some support. We need their charity, their support, if we are to be the us we want to be. The issue of power, of course, plays out in many different ways in a church. But one of the clearest places is at the boardroom table. Westerners and non-Westerners have very different ways of organizing, of making decisions. 
Both are very good at making decisions, but they do it in very, very different ways. Remember, most folk in the world are collectivists, and for them, often the goal in a meeting is not to be productive, but to be united, to be connected. Westerners tend to like sharp timelines, little discussion, wham, bam, and we're done. But for the majority in the world, decisions are not like that. We'll look at the specifics of this in our next series called Committed. But for now, let's just highlight intent. If we know deep inside us that we need these different folk, if we are to be the us we want to be, that we feel called to be, then surely we will want to learn what works for them in the meeting, rather than thinking that somehow we need to teach them how to properly run a meeting. This giving up of assumptions takes a while to learn. After Damber and I had been working together for years, planning and leading intercultural worship services all over the place, suddenly it dawned on me that in every one of these instances, in every service, I was and we were using the basic North American template for worship and then overlaying this with intercultural elements. It had never occurred to me at all that we could start by using the Nepali template and then overlay it with intercultural elements from here. Power can be almost invisible to many of us who possess it. Now, think about Danvers' words. Each of us should give away their power and just create this space, a very vulnerable space, where everyone can adjust together. A very vulnerable space. A mutually vulnerable space. This is not always the image we have of a church. Just create the room which can address everyone of who the people are there. Be vulnerable ourselves and allow people to bring in their gifts and talents. And, and language should not be the barrier on the process. Just create the room. Be vulnerable ourselves. This might have been part of the secret at Knox. Two elements were at play here. One, we knew we were on our last legs. The church seats 1,200. And on any given Sunday, we had room to squeeze in another 1,100 or maybe 1,150. Basically, our finances were down to miracle-dependent. On top of that, I, I really had no idea of what we were doing or how to do it. Then, for whatever reason, I don't mind failing. I don't mind falling. 19 times out of 20, if on the 20th time we soar. We needed each other at Knox. Every group needed each other. Well, that of course created some challenges. With only about 15% of our people having United Church roots and culture, only 15% familiar with the United Church ways and rules, we were often not always entirely in sync with United Church regulations. To become vulnerable is to give away our rigid thoughts. And, our rigid thoughts, uh, yeah. Yes, give away that. And, and, and make ourselves flexible. This, for me, was one of the interesting links in Danvers' mind. That vulnerability involved giving up rigid thinking. I think Danvers had in mind two related but different rigidities. I hope that's a word, rigidities. One is the kind of denominational rules we were talking about, the formal regulations. 
The other relates to expectation, that there is an expected way of being church, dressing a certain way, following certain unstated but rigid rules. An example might be time. Often at Knox, I'd say nobody there seemed to have any sense of time. Nothing ever started on time. Nothing ever finished on time. Our 10.30 service would begin at the earliest at 10.35, maybe 10.40, and would do so with perhaps half of our congregation present. Then over the next 20 minutes or so, people would drift into the service and take their places. Shortly after that, people would start drifting out. Sometimes they would drift out and come back in. This was especially true in the early days with the Nepali folk. Some of the older Nepalis would talk to each other when they drifted in. If instead of accepting this, we had shushed everybody, tried to teach Western-style punctuality, well, we would have driven them away. The people, whoever comes from outside, when they see the rules in the place first, they back up. They back up immediately because they don't want to be under anybody's control. That is why they, they push themselves away from that space. Remember, for collectivists, it's all about group harmony. Almost everything is. It's about the feeling that they belong. This is far more important than what we produce. We'll look at this a bit more in episodes 10 and 11. Losing face, being embarrassed is a sure way to drive people away, no matter whether they are individualists or collectivists. Nobody wants to be embarrassed. Danber himself recognizes the tensions in this relationship with rules. People hate rules, but we need rules to sustain ourselves and to be organized. We need rules. But, you know, for the people like us, who have come from the different culture, see this as the barrier. I see this as uh, somebody uh, ruling them. Okay, I am 66 years old, English is my native tongue, and that is the first time I have ever linked imposing rules with somebody ruling somebody else. What Damber is arguing for is not a suspension of rules, but sensitivity. The ability to see that the time for imposing rules is not when a relationship is just beginning. That's a time for wooing, not ruling a time for falling in love, for discovering the wonder of each other. Finding a structure for the relationship can follow once the relationship is strong enough. This process that Damber describes as everyone giving up power is not quite the same as what some folk call decolonization. It's bigger and broader than that. It applies to everyone else. Everybody. Like if, if, I'm, if I'm bringing a Nepali culture into the space, I think I should give away some of my traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it might uh, cost me. I may lose some of my personal identities. That's okay for the common good of all. I can give it away. So this applies to everybody else. I would not say that they have to forget who they are. They still keep their identities with them. This then links back to mutual change, the mutual adaptation that is part of the transformational welcome we talked about when we looked at the levels of welcome. However, it's deeper than that. What Denver is saying is that even those who came here as refugees have power, and we need to recognize it, and they need as well to bend it, release it for the common good. Understanding this rightly can be empowering. This doesn't mean that the levels and domains of power are equal. But everyone has some power. And everyone needs to release some of that power, some of their hopes and expectations, in order for the community to deepen. 
This is a part of their process of claiming a place in the whole. This is a profound vision of the deep equality in community. It's a vision that does not pathologize the newcomer, the immigrant, the refugee, does not see them as powerless, as victims. There is an inherent dignity, I think, in what Amber is saying. This interplay between wooing and ruling, looking for the right time in the relationship for regulation, touches on other themes we've looked at in these podcasts. In William Bridges' change model from last week's episode, you don't impose rules until the end of the last stage. When you're in that neutral zone, creating new rules would be neither helpful nor appropriate. You can't both clarify and fuzzify at the same time. Another way to think about this is to use the double diamond model developed by the British Design Council some 15 years ago. This model grew out of their research into how innovating companies or people navigated their way through the creative process. They found, as they checked across the different companies, a similar four-step process was involved. Discovery, definition, development, and delivery. The discovery stage is a time for gathering information, for exploring. Looking at engaging newcomers, for example, into a faith community, this would be a time simply for learning about each other. This is followed by a definition stage, and here we're beginning to filter through what we've learned in the discovery stage and making sure everyone understands the context. In our example, this would be a time for a conversation with the other, in essence saying something like, oh, is this who you are then? Have I got it right? And the third stage is development. This is the start of the actual design process. Here, in our example, you would be beginning to design ministry together between the two communities, the newly arrived one and the existing one. And the final stage is delivery, and that's the final testing and production of the product. In our case, this would be when the mutual ministry is beginning to happen. And it's only at this point, when the relationships have been developed, when love and trust have grown in this emerging intercultural community, that you would bring in rules, and you would do so respectfully, mutually, and as needed. Be vulnerable ourselves and allow people to bring in their gifts and talents. I first encountered that legend of the Messiah at the gates over 40 years ago in a book by Henri Nouwen called The Wounded Healer. He, he wasn't the first to coin that phrase. The term was first used by Carl Jung, drawing on a Greek myth. For Jung, the term refers to the deep connection between the effect of therapists' own wounds or woundedness, and the wounds of the one seeking therapy. He wrote, The therapist must go on learning endlessly. It is his own hurt that gives the measure of his power to heal. That bit about learning endlessly strikes a deep chord with me. To engage in ministry that actively welcomes the stranger means that you must continue learning endlessly. It's not perhaps the ideal field for the easily frustrated. And often means unlearning what you thought you just learned 
and then learning something else instead. The mind and the heart can never fully settle. But in this way, both parties then are equalized. Both are actively learning, learning about each other, learning how to be in spiritual community together, learning how to do church together. But note what that deep equalizer is. It is the experience of being wounded. I came to experientially understand this when, five years into my ministry at Knox, my daughter's heart suddenly failed completely. We knew she had a weakness in her heart, but this for us as her parents was the unimaginable, our worst fear. I'd sometimes wondered before what it would be like to actually have to live through your worst fear. What would it be like on the other side? Now I knew. It was just very, very quiet. At that time, and and I don't think I really understood why at the time, at that time the only people I was really comfortable with were the refugees, the war affected. You see, they neither pitied nor consoled me. They just looked at me. Or rather, I guess, we just looked at each other. I knew they understood, and perhaps they felt the same, some deep commonality. They carried me for a long time, that Knox community, walking through our days, waiting, waiting not just for a new heart for my daughter, but in a sense for all of us, learning new ways of being together, learning new ways of being vulnerable together. And for those days and for that companionship, I will be forever grateful. One reason that intercultural might have worked at Knox is because no one was strong alone. We were only strong together. We needed each other. And out of that mutual need and respect, courage and creativity flourished. So what is it that we can bring to the intercultural table? We can and must simply bring ourselves and our own deep awareness of our incompleteness as individuals and as communities. One of the ways to translate Shaddai, one of the Hebrew names for God, is the one who is complete, the one who is sufficient. So if God is the one who is sufficient, we, by definition, are the ones who are not. If our goal is to create a mutually vulnerable space, as Damber suggests, we cannot enter it any other way than with humility. We cannot bring any of our medals or trophies into such a space, even if they are beautiful, well-earned church medals and trophies. Since God has blessed me with incompetencies that apparently are quickly evident, I sometimes worried at Knox that I was acting in self-interest, trying to create a space where I could feel okay about my own incompleteness as a minister, as a person. And then, without fully realizing what was happening, we were generating a mutually vulnerable space where all of us felt free to fail. If we messed up a hymn or solo or reading, we just stop and start again. And since none of us really knew what we were doing or where we were going, we could easily pivot when we discovered we were heading off in the wrong direction. No embarrassment, no shame. I've often commented about how fortunate I was to be surrounded by such great leaders at Knox. But what made them great wasn't competence, per se. We were always stumbling. Meetings were often a disaster. What made them great was their great love. I think of one of our leaders, our our dear brother Tio, Uncle Tio to many, drove cab. 
He died a few years back. He was Yoruba with the thickest of accents. He'd often come to the front to offer a prayer, and none of us would understand a single word he said. But it was beautiful, moving. You see, we loved him, and he us, and we needed him, and he us. Our next two podcasts, the beginning of our committed series, are on unconscious bias. I think, I hope, you'll find them very helpful whether you are part of a faith community or not. I am grateful to the United Church Foundation who funded this research and to the United Church Intercultural Ministries and Publishing House for their support. Theme music is by Bruce Harding. Our opening music today was from Nepali Language Worship at Knox. And I am deeply grateful to Dan Kodka for his wisdom and insight and for his patient companionship as together we explored how to be in community together and how together to intentionally open out. The people believe that they are in power and they can do everything what they can do, you know, from their end. No, we have to give away that kind of thought.